0: Turn with me to 2 Samuel. We are going through the book. It's our regular diet here at King's Chapel, Books of the Bible. We are in 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 5 this morning. I will read to you the word uh, when, we, when we get there. Let me just do a, a short um, introduction, bring everybody kind of up to speed. For, for the time has arrived. We're in, we're in 2 Samuel 5, and the time has arrived for David, the second king of Israel, to be crowned king of all of Israel. It started way back in chapter 13 of First Samuel when Saul, who was the first king of Israel, refused to heed and to follow the command of God. It was given to him through God's spokesman, God's priest, God's, priest, God's prophet Samuel, that he were to wait to sacrifice... Wait for Samuel, but Saul took it upon himself in an unauthorized sacrifice, and God told him, because he disobeyed the word through the prophet, God told Saul through Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For if you had, if you had followed his command, if you had obeyed his voice, his word, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom will not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord. Unlike Saul, this new leader, this new king will literally be according to God's heart, God's will, God's desire. The new king, David, will genuinely act in accordance with the ways of God by the grace of God in a way that Saul didn't. God again gave Saul another chance, another clear direction in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel to eliminate all the Amalekites and their livestock. Yet Saul decided once again to do what he wanted to do and he spared the king of the Amalekites, Agag, along with some of the choice livestock. And he lied. When confronted, he lied to Samuel, which means he lied to God. Samuel's his spokesman. And this rebellion and disobedience was the last straw. God removed his spirit from Samuel. And he said, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel from this day. And has given it to a neighbor of yours. Someone who is better than you. We know that to be David. And then for several years, King Saul pursued David. He wanted him dead. He wanted him Out of the picture. And Saul did everything he could do to destroy, disrupt David. To kill David. But David maintained his righteousness, his faithfulness. For he refused to take the kingdom. It's very important. He refused to take the kingdom by force. He waited on God. He waited. David waited. He had opportunities to say, okay, I've been anointed king. And I'm going to take the kingdom. But he waited. He waited on the Lord because God's promises can never be thwarted or foiled. He knew that and he waited. Calvin says this, this should serve as an example to us. This should serve an example and instruction to us so that if God delays fulfilling his promise to us. We will not lose courage, but will preserve to the end, end quote, to wait on the Lord. David is waiting on the Lord. Then Saul and his three sons are killed, you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel. And 2 Samuel opens up with David being anointed king of Judah. The 11 tribes to the north turn their loyalty to one of one of Saul's sons, seeking the wrong king to protect them and fight for them. Yet David, with the single tribe of Judah, is is now king. In chapters 2 through 4, we saw this civil war. uh, A civil war with, with the people of God. It was very sad. Lots of power plays being done, lots of blood being shed. The civil war ended last week. We noticed Ishbosheth, was Saul's son, was murdered by two ambitious young men, who then in turn was killed by David. And their bodies hung on the wall of Hebron. Ishbosheth's bones were taken and given a, a proper burial. Again, Calvin's insight is helpful. He says, this shows us that when men are preoccupied with wicked desires, they lose all reason and their judgment is perverse and confused. In other words, what he's saying is they were so caught up wanting their own king to go their own way, do their own things, that it, went, it kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And that happens to us. When we choose to sin, and we all choose to sin, everybody in this room, and everyone means me too, and then we continue to sin, and we continue to sin, and we continue to sin. We find ourselves in that dark place. God wants us to turn and repent. He'll grant us repentance if we seek His face. The king is dead, Ishbosheth is dead. And now, chapter 5 changes everything. Just four things. And as we look at this, I, I, I want you to feel what's going on in Israel. It's a mess. Civil war, bloodshed, murder, power playing, a mess. That's the atmosphere. But now in chapter five, we see the crowned king. We'll see the king to be crowned. And King David will be crowned. Then we'll, we'll look at this captured city. It's celebrity status and finally the conquest finality which will go to communion. So let's look at this together. Number one, the crowned king. Verse 1 of chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, sorry. Hear the word of the Lord, the infallible, inerrant word of God. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, David, You shall be shepherd of my people of Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David over Israel. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Sounds familiar, Jesus' public ministry, 30 years old, around 30 years old. And he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah, seven years and six months, as we've seen over the past couple of chapters. And at Jerusalem we reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. God had a blessing through the reading of his word. See, finally now the 11 tribes of Israel have come to their senses. <laughs> and, and now they're, they're coming to King David. Now, if you notice in verses 1, verse 3, and verse 5, the word all is used. The narrator is signaling to us the complete unity of their decision and, and the reign of King David. Now, I don't want to say too much about their motives, but let's think this through for a second. Their king is dead, the eleven tribes of Israel. They come to him after, not before, the unqualified and the unauthorized king is dead. And there's no one left. We saw that last week. Saul's house is completely destroyed. Unfortunately, we know from the narrator that it's been seven years. So if you remember, Ishbosheth was crowned king over the eleven. Tribes, unauthorized, not anointed of God, him and Abner, and, and they've reigned. And now, seven years later, and, and now it's because Abner is dead, who's second in command. Ishbosheth, king, is dead. And one would only wonder would they have come to King David if Ishbosheth was alive? Abner was alive. I don't think so. But if you saw last week, the only person in the lineage of David excuse me, of Saul, the tribe of Benjamin is left, is his grandson, the son of Jonathan. He's crippled, remember? So he's, on, he's not capable of being king in those days. And, and, and we see them now coming to their senses, and it just reminds me that sometimes we need to come to our senses, and we only do that, some of us, when we're left with nothing else. We're, we're, in, the, we're in the pig farm feeding the swine, came to his senses, remember, the prodigal son. Many times when we're, when we're clinging to, when we are things that we cling to for our security and peace are stripped away, it is then that we come to realize that God is king and we're, we're ready now to hear the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and we're willing to come to Christ. There are many obstacles and excuses that people make that stand in the way of coming to Jesus, but when they're removed and we come to our senses, we come. So, family, what are you holding on to? What is it that you're holding on to from keeping you to submit, to confess your sin and your need for a Savior? What idol do you treasure more than Christ, value more than your Savior, the Lord Jesus? What are you looking to? What are you looking to? What are you seeking after to to, to have or to find a sense of self, of justification? All of us seek idols. What is that idol in your way? Don't wait till it's too late. Come to your senses by the power of the spirit and come to Christ and submit to him. These elders who are representatives of all Israel come to their senses and they remind David the first thing is that we're family. Notice that. You're a bone in my flesh. We, are, we share the, the, the common ancestry. We talked about this. You remember Deuteronomy 17 when God said, you're going to get a king. Down the road, you'll get a king. But make sure that king in which you get follows my law, reads my word, but is also among your brothers. And here all Israel is affirming, it's about time, but finally affirming that David fulfilled that requirement. And David comes to them not as, not as, a, not as a, a, a stranger, but a brother. Not as a foreigner, but a brother. Not as an enemy, but a brother. He's, he's born a... He, he's, he's your bone and your flesh. Do you realize that the incarnation, God become man, Jesus who took on flesh and bones, means that this reality between King David and the tribes of Israel comes to full completion between the entire human race and that of Jesus Christ who is the king of kings? Jesus comes not to us as a stranger, a foreigner, an enemy, but as a brother, identifying with us in our humanity. That's what incarnation is. Hebrews 2 says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that Jesus had to become human. God became man so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to die atoning death, absorbing God's wrath for sin upon himself. Jesus identifies with us in our humanity in order that he can become the sacrifice and the means of our salvation. Mankind sins against God and God becomes man to redeem mankind. They point out David Nex's leadership. If if you want to get along with somebody, if you you know if you if you want help, if you want to join somebody, talk about how good they are. They say to David, "Not it's been you, it wasn't really Saul. I know Saul was our king, that our beloved king, but it was you that really led us in and out of battle. You're the one that kept us safe. You're the one that brought us in and out. You're you're the savior of Israel." And in fact, while we're on the topic, David. Let's talk about what the Lord said, that you shall be my shepherd. Look at what it says. You shall be shepherd of my people. This is what the Lord said. And you shall be prince over Israel. Extraordinary. Up to now, God is the shepherd of Israel. Genesis 48, Jacob spoke of the God who has been my shepherd all my life. Describing God's care for his people. David is the first specific person being called shepherd over God's people. Now, there were shepherds in the Old Testament but here, David is called the shepherd of God's people, and they—they they, they knew, they—they they understood, they were aware the Lord was the shepherd of Israel and what this meant for David, that David now uh, had the the model, the example, of God who is shepherd over His people. Now, the faithfulness that was needed, the justice, the loving kindness that was needed for David to act as God's shepherd over Israel, he was an example. God was an example. And, and, and I want you to see how, how, how beautiful this is. What was David doing as a young boy before he became king over Israel? You remember? It was Jesse, his father, his house. That Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. And, and, and Samuel said, show me your sons. He went through every son. I said, and the Lord said, not him, not him, not him, not him. Do you have any more sons? He said, oh, actually, I actually, have one more. He's keeping the sheep. He's a shepherd boy. The Lord said, that's the guy. Arise and anoint him. It is he. David is a shepherd. He's very familiar with what a good shepherd should be. It's amazing how God works those things out, isn't it? He had led the sheep in and out of pasture. He has fed his sheep and kept them nourished. He has oftentimes killed wild animals, we read about David. Protecting his sheep against wild animals who would want to take out his sheep and kill his sheep. David cared for, protected, nourished, and heeded the sheep of his father's flock. And now it's time for David to do the same thing with God's people. Jeremiah tells us, God spoke through Jeremiah and said, I will give you shepherds, men after my own heart, who will feed you and acknowledge and, uh, uh, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. I will set shepherds over you who will care for you. And they shall feel no more, fear no more. You're not going to fear, you're gonna have a shepherd. Nor be dismayed, neither shall anyone shall any be missing it is good protection from the shepherd, declares the Lord. Look what else it says. David is the ruler, or the prince. Hebrew could mean ruler. It's just add an emphasis of what David is supposed to do. And isn't that true today? I'm 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 so, so I tell people this all the time, especially other pastors. I I am I consider myself honestly so blessed. Six of us shepherds, pastor, elders in this church. Yes, I'm the lead, but let me tell you, the other five are awesome. They love you. They care for you. They protect and provide for you. They pray for you. I am so blessed. I am so blessed to have five other men call, me, call pastor elders in this church to serve you. I am so blessed. You know, God had promised in the Old Testament that he will send an ultimate shepherd. An ultimate shepherd for his people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ brings God's promises concerning David to fulfillment. In fact, Matthew gives us the account, uh, the lineage and the account of Jesus, the son of David. And he takes this text and Micah 2.5.2 and he says in Hebrew, excuse me, Matthew 2.6, he says concerning Jesus, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus himself, would say that the people are harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He will, he will identify himself as the long-awaited shepherd in Matthew 26, John 10. And the tribes of Israel coming to David at Hebron, uh, Hebron glorious anticipates and point to what it means to come to God's king, to come to God's shepherd. A wonderful shepherd whose name is Jesus. Beautiful. I really like this guy, a Baptist Scottish preacher of the past, Alexander McLaren. He concludes this section with these words. I I loved it, and I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read it slow so you can grasp it. The end of uh, this first section, he says this. So David has reached the throne at last, schooled by suffering, and in the full maturity of his powers, enriched. By the regularly varied experiences, if you've been tracking with us, experience of his changeful life, changeful life, tempered by the swift alterations of heat and cold, polished by friction, consolidated by heavy blows, he has been welded into a fitting instrument for God's purposes. In other words, everything was thrown at David. And by God's grace, David is changed. David has been groomed David will be the king and is king of Israel. Number two, look at the captured city. Number two, the king and his men, that's David, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off. There's sarcasm there. You're thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David on that day, and David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, up to now, Jerusalem's not really mentioned in Samuel. It's mentioned once in 1 Samuel 17 when David kills Goliath. He takes the head of Goliath and he brings it to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as we know, is, is an important city. And, 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 and there's something, though, that stands out, I think, when we talk about Jerusalem. I just want to mention this because I think it's, it's appropriate in the, in the, in the narrative, in, in the narration of this. Centuries earlier in the city of Jerusalem, centuries earlier a king, a king of righteousness, King Melchizedek, the mysterious priest king in Jerusalem, had blessed Abraham and received a tithe from him in Genesis 14. And in due time, Melchizedek became a pattern for a promised future high priest and king. In Psalm 110, a messianic psalm written by David, Melchizedek is presented to us as a type of Christ. And Hebrews, the New Testament book, the author points out that Jesus is the ultimate king and high priest. He's not just the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. He is the high priest forever, according to Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, king of righteousness, king of peace. He's the king of Jerusalem. Now, David's the king of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how much that played in a role of his mind, but we do know that David is looking for a new city. His objective, his aim was for this city, the city called the City of David. And, and, and first and foremost, this attack against the city is important because God promised it to them. This was a fulfillment of God's promise. Therefore, David's first recorded act as king over all Jerusalem, all Israel, the 11 tribes and the tribe of Judah, is to step into a long-awaited promise that goes back to the law that the Jebusites will be eradicated from the land. Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 7. They were a people that were corrupting God's people. Well, God's people allowed them to corrupt them, right? Maybe a better way of saying it. It was time for the enemies of God to be defeated. Second, David needed a new capital city. Remember where he was? He was in Hebron, and now he needed a new city. And he wanted to unite all of Israel. He needed a capital that was more north, more centrally located. Remember, Judah's in the, in the southern part of Israel. And what's very interesting is located not, it's not on the border of Judah and Benjamin. You look at the city in those days, right? So Benjamin is the tribe of Saul. Judah is the tribe of David. And he's, he's kind of bringing unity between these two tribes and unifying the nations, the, all the 12 tribes as king over Israel. But <laughs> the Jebusites, were, they weren't just going to walk away. In fact, he said, "They look what it says. They thought themselves to be, you know what, we're, we're, we own this place, we're not leaving. In fact, it says, you will not come here even by the blind and the lame. In other words, this is child play, like you guys got to be kidding me. David and his army, we'll send the lame and the weak out there and we'll win. That, that's, the, that's the sarcasm. Uh, of their, their, you know, the idea that David and his men were actually going to come in and do something. But David's anger gets aroused, just like he did against Goliath's taunt against Israel, right? And he says in verse 8, let's go. We're going to battle the lame, and the, lame, uh, the lame and the blind. If, if that's what you think, let's, we're going to do this. And, and kind of foreshadows, does it not? Does it not foreshadow the king of kings again, the Lord Jesus Christ? Just as David represents the Messiah or picture of Messiah and the arrogant and boastful Jebusite represents the self-righteous who will scorn Jesus, yet they will be defeated. Yet they will be defeated. They scorned him and nailed him to a cross and placed him in the grave. But Jesus rose from the grave victorious. David defeats the Jebusite. Somehow a lot of commentators are all over the place about this water shaft tunnel. They, they have found it. It's uh, something like 35 feet drop into a pool. It's, it's wide. You can actually walk in this thing. It's, it's, it's gigantic. David must have knew about this tunnel. Must have knew how this tunnel can act in a, you know, and be strategically placed in order to take the city. If you read First Chronicles 11, a parallel uh, text, a cross-reference, it, 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 it seems that David sent Joab, remember David's nephew, ahead of him. Maybe he went in through the shaft. We don't really know. But the bottom line is David and his army with Joab attacked and took Jerusalem. His enemies were defeated. And look what it says. He became greater and greater because nothing can stop God. Nothing can stop the promise of God. Nothing can stop the word of God. It's actually, this is actually a fulfillment that goes way back to Genesis, when God told Abraham in his covenant that he made with him, the nations will be taken. Someone once said this, I thought this was good. God's promises are not stamped with an expiration date. God's promises are not stamped with an expiration date in small print. All of which should make a difference in the way waiting Christians read their Bibles and look to the future, end quote. You and I know a thousand, three thousand years later how strategic Jerusalem will be. It'll be the place where David's son Solomon will build the temple. But more importantly, it will be where David's greater son will be crucified. And today, those who come to King Jesus recognize that he is the one who will finally and completely defeat his enemies. The enemies of God, the enemies of God's people are variously described in New Testament language. Behind them is, is Satan and his demon and his accusers. In his hands there is power of a sin, death. It threatens the lives the thrones and dominions and rulers, Colossians calls it. But God <laughs> wins decisively over the enemies by the death of Christ. And his resurrection from the grave. Like the tribes of Israel to Hebron that day. Like the tribes of Israel in Jerusalem. or oh, Hebron when he first became king. You, Jesus. You alone are our savior. You alone kept us safe. You alone had gone into the grave. And out of the grave. And you alone are our security. And We know that Jerusalem has a lot of important things happen in Jerusalem and the significance of it. But let me tell you something very important. The significance of Jerusalem for David's kingdom is the key to understanding Jerusalem and God's promise. It says, by faith, the writer of Hebrew writes, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Listen, we as followers of Jesus Christ are looking for the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem promised Beautifully seen and revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the seas were no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. The new Jerusalem will be the place where God's promises to Abraham a blessing of the nations reach their fulfillment. It is the place where all all defiance of God's kingdom is completely and fully vanquished. Cap the crowned king, the captured city, the celebrity status. I, I, we won't spend much time on this, but I just want to point this out. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David, the cedar trees, carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake. of, Of his people Israel. Verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters born to David. And these are the names of those who were born in him in Jerusalem. John, Paul, Mark, Jim, Robert. That's their nicknames. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Or Shadrach and Benny. Depends on what you're watching these days. But anyway, a lot of sons. And what you have is again. Cedars and... Concubines. David's living a good life. <laughs> David's growing reputation brings this regional monarch, this king, harem, uh, king of Tyre. He sends an ambassadorial delegation to David. He's at Jerusalem. Mary and I were out west years ago uh, in San Francisco, and uh, we went to the place called Mirror Woods. Maybe some of you have been there. The trees are just incredible. I don't think I'll ever see a tree that big. That, that's the kind of cedar trees that are being sent. And why is that so significant? Why is the text, the narrator, tell us that? Because this is a foreign king. This is a king of another nation. This is an outsider coming to David, who's king in Jerusalem, right? Someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue, every tongue, will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a glimpse of the nations in the world bowing down to the king in Jerusalem. The kingdom like a mustard seed that will grow into this giant tree where all the birds in the nests have their nests. And the kingdom and where every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be in the kingdom of God. This foreign king is bowing and acknowledging the king of Jerusalem. Now, it should be noted that this building project doesn't take, it's kind of not chronological in order here, but it's important the narrator wants to see that as David takes the kingdom and has unity in the kingdom, he wants us to see, that he stresses that the fulfillment of God's promises and the, the, the nature of this kingdom that's why it says in verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. Foreign king, bowing down, sending him cedars, masons, and people to help build a house. But verse 13. <laughs> and David took. He added more women. He added more children. And in the minds of those in antiquity, um, many wives, many children meant prosperity. The problem with adding multiple wives are so many. <laughs> it's alarming. It even, it even flies in the face of what God said in Deuteronomy about this king that I mentioned earlier about it. should read his word, uh, um, should be among his brothers. He also said, shall not multiply wives for himself. But David's a man of his culture. David's a man of his day. He's doing what conquering kings did. This was the measure of greatness, a celebrity status, stature. As if he didn't have enough ladies in his life. We read a few chapters ago that he wanted Michael back. He'll regret that day. And here is the Lord's anointed king. And here David is, is dropping seeds that will crush him. This is not good. David will have his downfall with another woman, Bathsheba. What are you doing, David? For all of David's greatness, prosperity, celebrity status, he's not Jesus. He's not the pure and spotless lamb who is undefiled and separate from sinners. There's no one like Jesus crowning king, captured city, celebrity status, the conquest finality. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistine had come and spread out in the land of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to ba- Baal-Berezim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord had broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal, Berizim. And the Philistines left their idols there and David and his men carried them away. Now the narrator is going back to kind of in, in, in chronicle order when he is now king of Israel. He's been, he's been now crowned king of all Israel, 11 tribes and the one tribe, 12 tribes. And the narrator wants to see there's two things you can do. When David's crowned, you could, number one, embrace him as a friend and an ally or resist him and attack him as an enemy. Hiram, the the king of Tyre, chose the former. The Philistine chose the latter. And what's important about this battle is a couple things, two things. Number one, David's king of Israel, all of Israel supporting him. He still inquires of the Lord. I know I point that every time, but I just... If you were given a position tomorrow of great power and wealth, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to forget God. You said, no, no, not me. I don't know. If the church grew to 40,000 people, would I stay humble? That's a good question. I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge. David seeks the face of God. (laughs) If all Israel anointed him. And God tells him, go and fight. And what does David do? David obeys. He's a model of man of faith. You inquire of God by his word, through his spirit, and you promptly obey. What does James tell us? Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. David met the enemy and defeated them, naming the place baal Brazim, which means breakthrough, the victory. So not only does he seek the face of God, he obeys the face of God. Now look at the second fight, verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he does it again. And the Lord tells him, no, you shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite of the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the enemy of the Philistines. And David did. David did as the Lord commanded him. Simple as that is. And struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David questions were the same, but his answer was different. The Lord is saying, don't go. Before he said go, now he's saying, don't go. God was telling David that he was not to go straight up, but to wait. Why? It could have been a test. You know, sometimes God tests us in our faith to mature us in our faith. Remember, Satan tempts, God tests. Will you wait on me? Maybe God's testing you today. Wait. Wait. Wait, maybe, maybe, well, probably at least this is part of it. There's probably a bigger army. David doesn't know that. God knows it. God knows the future. God is in the future. There's no time with God. He knows all things. Can't learn. Wait, then go. Then go. You know, sometimes there's a time to go and there's a time to wait. And now David goes and he attacks. He says, when you hear the the sound, go. It was a signal. The Lord is before you. Go out before them. Remember this. Years earlier, what did Israel say to Samuel? We want a king, who? Who's like all the other nations. The king will go out. He will fight our battles. He will bring us in and out. We want a king like the other nations who do our bidding and do our fighting. Here, David is waiting on the Lord to do his battle. Which is better? <laughs> Which is better? When God goes before you, that's better. A place for waiting, a place for action. David accomplished what Saul had yet to achieve because David did what the Lord told him, and he triumphed. A great victory. And actually, from, we'll read more about some fighting with the Philistines, but nothing in, in comparison. There's no more serious threat in David's kingdom. With the Philistines. David is truly a better king. He has done what King Saul could never do. And here again. David becomes the portrait of the ideal king of Israel. He is truly the shepherd of God's people. He is truly caring and delivering them from their enemies. But I want to go back to verse 3. I left something out. Hopefully some of you caught it. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron. And King David what? Made a covenant with them. Before the Lord, and they anointed king, David king, over Israel. All the representative of the tribes. Doesn't mean everybody in Israel came there. All the representative of the tribes came down to David and crowned him. And what did David do? He enters into a covenant with them. David would have reminded them of the word of God and the promise of God. And he enters into a covenant as the king. Notice that he is now king. And as the king he enters into the covenant, And notice in your Bible, David makes the king. Excuse me, David makes the covenant. The people don't make the covenant with David. David makes the covenant with them. The terms are given by him, accepted by the elders, not the other way around. And what do they do? They had action and they respond and they anoint him the king of Israel. Just as he was anointed king in Judah. God is a covenant-making God. He enters into covenant with us, not the other way around. David the shepherd is their covenant mediator between God and the people of Israel. He will represent God to the people and he will represent the people to God. And David here is is the shepherd covenant king. He's facing conflict. David the shepherd king is is capturing a city, Zion, Jerusalem. David is the shepherd king, has other nations bowing down and paying homage to him as, as the covenant king maker. He does for them what Jesus will ultimately do for us. Centuries later, David's greater son is called the great shepherd. The apostle Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Jesus himself will say that he is the good shepherd. The thief, he says, comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I, Jesus said, come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Before his crucifixion. The true and better king. Took bread. And gave thanks. Broke it. Gave it to his disciples and said take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup. Gave thanks and offered it to them. And he said to them drink. Drink of the cup. All of you. This is my blood. Of the new covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. David cannot ultimately save us. David is a great man of faith for the moment, but he can't save. But through this fallen, marred, perishable figure, little glimpses of David's greater son Jesus is seen. And we gather this morning as as we reflect and remember that covenantal sacrifice as we take of communion this morning. The broken bread, his body, the juice, his blood, It's not only a time of remembering, it's not only a time of memorializing this sacrifice, this covenantal sacrifice. In a very real sense, Jesus himself, by and through the power and presence of his spirit, is inviting you to come to the table. Using the sun as an illustration, Calvin says this, that Christ is present influentially. The sun remains in the heaven, yet his warmth and light are present on earth, so the radiance of the spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ, end quote. The band will play. We will confess our sins. We will repent of our sins. And then we will celebrate the work of Christ. Christ sacrificed his his body that was broken is the bread in which we eat, the cup, the blood in which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. God made that covenant with us we, we don't come to God uh, 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 with anything but our sin, right? It is a work of sheer grace. So the question is, will you come to King Jesus who paid the penalty for your sins, who defeated the enemy of sin, death, and hell? I, this table is, is a communion table for those who love Jesus, who have been forgiven of their sins, and maybe you've never made that commitment, and today is the day, that you will confess your sins, repent of your sin, and come to the table. table's for all those who trust Jesus. If you have not, the scripture says don't come to the table. Just sit, pray. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus and what it means to be forgiven of your sins, what it means when you hear the word gospel. What does the word gospel mean? You can talk to me, Pastor Ricky, uh, after the service. We'd love to talk with you. We're gonna come down two aisles again like we did last weekend and go out this way. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the covenant that you have provided for us in the precious sacrifice of your son. Father, thank you that you have made that promise and that you keep your promises, Lord. And Father, we pray that as we just reflect on the sacrifice that 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 your spirit would draw us closer to Jesus, that we would see our sin, see his holiness, and see his great work of forgiveness at Calvary. Father, work in our hearts. Let us celebrate the work of Jesus, the great shepherd, the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Lord, we pray your blessing.